The information presented in this podcast is of a general nature and is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. It should never be used as a substitute for mental care, medical care, or for prevention, diagnosis, or treatment of any other illness. Always consult with a mental health or healthcare professional before engaging in any activities promoted in this podcast. Have you ever wanted to be a superhero? Join clinical psychologist Dr. Janina Scarlett and host Dustin McGinnis as they explore the psychology behind your favorite TV shows, movies, books, comics, video games, and more. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Superhero Therapy with Dr. Janina Scarlett. I am your host, Dustin McGinnis. I am a musician, filmmaker, and all-around fanboy. And I'm Dr. Janina Scarlett. I'm a clinical psychologist, author, and a full-time witch. Thank you so much for tuning in to this very special episode. We got a chance to go up to San Francisco and see Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. Oh my god. It was freaking amazing. (laughs) It was incredible. It was incredible. Like a bolt of lightning, it sparked something inside us all. It was a journey into the imagination, to a world filled with magic, heart, and a courageous trio of friends. Eventually, we turned the final page. But the boy who lived lives on. Platform nine and three quarters. Best to do it at a run, if you're nervous. Mischief managed. Albus is missing. I need to find my son. We need to. And sometimes darkness comes from unexpected places. Harry, is Albus in danger? I think we all are. J.K. Rowling continues her story on stage. River! Where the magic is real. Flippando! Benita! Tarantaledra! I've never fought alone, you see. And I never will. Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. I'll be honest, after reading the book, I had some trepidation about seeing the play. I think it was hard for me to read the play because I'm so used to reading the books that allow you to see the characters' perspectives and allow you to experience the different kinds of events from the characters' points of view. That when Harry Potter and the Cursed Child book first came out, I read it that same day. Uh, We got it at midnight release Mm -hmm. and I pretty much stayed up all night reading. I had a difficult time because I had a difficult time connecting to the characters emotionally because the play is primarily dialogue. It's in script form, isn't it? Yes, it is. I think because of that, I had a difficult time relating to the characters because we don't hear their thoughts. We don't see their facial expressions. We don't understand their emotions the way that we do in books. But seeing this play really put it all into perspective, seeing the beats that the actors delivered, seeing the magic going on on stage, it was absolutely J.K. Rowling style, incredible magic. And I would highly, highly recommend for all Harry Potter fans to see it if possible. 
So needless to say, this is going to be a very spoiler-ridden episode. We are going to talk in depth about this. If you haven't read the book, we highly recommend that you come back and listen to this after you do so, after you either read it or see the play, because there will be spoilers. So as you were mentioning there about reading the book, the script adaptation, I never had a chance, and I thought the performance was amazing. Just the magic that was there, the special effects, man, it hit me. I got chills. I guess that doesn't say much because I get chills a lot. I'm a fanboy. What what am I going to (laughs) say? Ultimately, the play starts off where the books and the movies left off before. It's about 19 years in the future. Harry Potter's son, Albus Severus, is leaving to go to Hogwarts for his first year. He's very frightened of being placed in Slytherin. Dad, what if I am put in Slytherin? Albus Severus Potter. You were named after two headmasters of Hogwarts. One of them was a Slytherin, and he was the bravest man I've ever known. But you say that I am. Then Slytherin House will have gained a wonderful young wizard. But listen, if it really means that much to you, you can choose Gryffindor. The Sorting Hat takes your choice into account. Really? Really. As we've discussed on previous episodes, when it comes to Hogwarts houses, there are underlying expectations towards personalities and behaviors. This can lead to an air of prejudice regarding the houses. How does this play explore this theme? Well, the first seven books really focus on Harry's experience, and from his point of view, the Gryffindor house is seen as the heroic one, and the Slytherin house is seen as the house of villains, essentially. And multiple characters accuse Slytherins of being evil. And it's true that a number of Death Eaters had come from Slytherin. Dark Lord Voldemort himself had come from Slytherin as well. However, I think it created this prejudice in Harry and his friends that Slytherin House only hosts evil witches and wizards. And so Harry's and Ginny's older son, James, was sorted into Gryffindor, like his mom and dad. And so now their younger son, Albus Severus, is scared of being sorted into Slytherin because he assumes that Slytherin is a bad house to be in, that you want to be anywhere but Slytherin. And his brother James doesn't help the matter by making fun of him, by saying that Slytherin house isn't good. I think that these kind of rivalries and prejudices and stereotypes unfortunately make people more aggressive toward one another. It creates this us versus them attitude And although in some ways this kind of competition can create camaraderie within the house, it creates more hostility between the houses and can sometimes lead to the kind of prejudices that you were mentioning to where people are discriminating against one another based on the houses that they belong in. And so when Albus does get sorted into Slytherin, his older brother makes fun of him and even Harry at least unwillingly expresses his dislike about it even though Harry was the one that initially told him that, hey, even if you are placed in Slytherin, you'll be able to be successful. And you were named after two of the greatest headmasters I've ever known. And one of them was in Slytherin. And he was the bravest man I've ever known. 
I think that although Albus is initially disappointed, he does seem to really find his identity in Slytherin. Most definitely, and he finds a best friend in Scorpius Malfoy. It's very interesting, the dynamic that Scorpius is. He's kind of more of a Hermione, almost. If you really look at it, he's book smart, and he's definitely more anxious than Hermione was. But Scorpius and Albus receive their fair share of bullying while they're at the school. What I want to know is, how does this affect the boys and their personalities as they're developing through these years? I think that for the first few years, both of them are probably feeling maybe not very good about themselves. We see throughout the play that Scorpius is experiencing a lot of self-doubt, a lot of anxiety, a lot of insecurity. Whereas I think for Albus, there's a lot of hostility toward Gryffindors and toward his brother James, who seems to have it easy and who gets other Gryffindors to pick on Albus all of them bullying him for not following in his father's footsteps. So I think for Albus, there is a large disconnect in being placed in this house and not kind of following the Potter legacy. Although this brings him closer to his best friend, Scorpius, it also distances him from his family. Almost definitely. Albus's cousin, which is Ron and Hermione's daughter, Rose, separates herself from him as the years go on. She doesn't think they can co-mingle or coexist together in this world. So Scorpius not only has to deal with his association to the Malfoy lineage, it is also rumored that he is the son of Voldemort. Needless to say, this leads him to feel a great deal of anxiety and insecurity. How do we see this torment play out in Scorpius during this show? I think like a lot of children who experience bullying and who have rumors spread about them in school, Scorpius is really struggling. I think that we see a lot of parallels here to what Harry Potter himself had gone through when he felt like he didn't really have many friends other than Ron and Hermione, and in this case, Scorpius really only has the one friend in Albus. And I think that like Harry Potter, Scorpius also feels like nobody can understand him in terms of the rumors that are being spread about him in terms of the losses that he's gone through. I think that these rumors make him a lot more anxious to speak his mind, to stand up for himself, to ask Rose out on a date, for example. I think that he has been almost raised to believe that he's not worthy, that he doesn't deserve to exist. Wow, that's pretty hard. <laughs> but you do see it and you do feel it as it's going on, this horribly isolated existence. And the only friend he has is Albus, who is his whole world. Then again, just like Harry, he is kind of adjusted pretty well. He's a really good kid. He has a really good heart. And that's a very special thing to see that dynamic between Harry and Scorpius. I absolutely adore Scorpius. He was my favorite character in the show. <laughs> He's definitely the comedy relief, too. <laughs> well, and I think that he is the ultimate figure of compassion, right? He's somebody that had been through something really, really difficult. And he's someone who instead of being someone who retaliates against other people, he's somebody that does everything he can to help other people to do the right thing, to find joy in everything that he can. And 
even though his experience at Hogwarts is not always a happy one, I think that he tries to be grateful for all the experiences that he does have, especially the times that he gets to spend with his best friend. Oh, yeah. So you briefly mentioned this kind of friction between Harry and his son, Albus. Although Harry loves Albus with all of his heart and Albus loves Harry, they fight and they argue with one another. And at one point, they both tell the other that they wish they weren't father and son. What does this situation say with regard to parental conflicts and what are some good skills to avoid these types of disputes and saying things that you really don't mean? I think that Harry is trying really hard to give Albus the childhood he didn't have, but because of that, he's more preoccupied on almost forcing Albus to have the experiences that Harry wished he had instead of trying to see the world from Albus's point of view. He's also so buried in his ministry work that he's blind to his son's suffering and all his son really wants is to spend time with him. For Albus, I think he's become so resentful of his father and of living in his father's shadow that he fails to see how hard his father's trying to be a dad, maybe failing in being the kind of dad that Albus expects him to be, but is trying nonetheless. And I think that they keep on missing each other. I think that they keep on trying to communicate, but the messages are just not landing. And they're both trying to make the other be someone they're not. And I think because of that, their friction builds. And at one point, they end up both saying something they don't mean and really hurting each other. And I think that they hurt each other not because they really meant it, but because they really care. I think that the hurt that they both felt comes from a place of love. I think that they both really wanted to establish that relationship, which they eventually are able to do. But I think that what we're seeing is actually a pretty stereotypical relationship of a teenage boy and his father, or, you know, in other cases, a teenage girl and her mother, or, you know, sometimes parents of other genders. And I think that this kind of friction happens a lot when an adult parent is trying to force their child into a particular box and the teenager just wants to be seen and understood and supported and I think when Harry finally learns to do that that's when their relationship finally evolves yeah most definitely it's almost like a light bulb or a snap Harry connects with the reality that this is an individual he has his own way he has his own thing and I want to be interested in what he has to offer I think it's hard sometimes for everybody to really express what we're feeling. I'm wondering for our listeners, if you're a teenager or a young adult, if you ever struggled expressing yourself to your parents, or if you're a parent, if you ever struggled to understand your child. You and I both have been in both of these situations. And I remember being a teenager and just thinking my parents just don't understand and why can't they just listen? And now being a step-parent to two wonderful boys and often really falling short because sometimes I might be trying so hard to be a parent that I might be forgetting that there's a person in <laughs> front of me who is just trying to be themselves. And I think that it's a really humbling experience to understand how incredibly flawed we all are as humans and 
being able to see Harry and his son struggling in this way, I think really made me think in a lot of ways about the kind of relationships that I want to foster with our kids and then also with other individuals. Right. There is a reoccurring theme in this play, and it is of loss, specifically loss of a loved one. There's discussion of loss of Draco's wife and uh, Scorpius's mother, Astoria. A lot of the play revolves around Amos Diggory and his lifelong sadness over the death of his son, Cedric Diggory. And of course, there's Harry and the loss of his parents. What can be said with regard to this kind of loss and pain, and how does this play engage this topic? Those who love us never fully leave us. And you can always find in here. They're always in our heart, and the kind of hurt that we might experience after a death of a loved one is a kind of loss that cannot be put into words. It's the kind of loss that stays with us forever, much like the mark on Harry's forehead. It's a scar that is always there, and although it might be invisible, it's always there, and it frequently hurts. And so whether it's Amos Diggory, you know, Cedric's dad, who is forever devastated over the loss of his son, whether it's Draco, who will forever grieve his wife, whether it's Harry, who will forever be affected by the death of his parents, I think what we're seeing over and over and over again is that love is the most powerful source of magic and loss is one of the most excruciating experiences that we can go through. For Harry to be able to watch his parents being murdered and that scream that he let out, that was everything. I mean, my heart shattered in that moment mm -hmm. when Harry, as an adult, was forced to watch his parents being it was powerful. murdered. That primal scream, I mean, that was everything. I think that that scream said a lot more about what we go through when we lose someone than any words in any language could possibly describe. I think that's largely what the series are about. I think they're about understanding love and loss and understanding life because that's what life is really all about. It's about forming meaningful connections. It's about finding love, not only in romantic partners, but in significant people in our life. And it's also about mending broken hearts. Do not pity the dead, Harry. Pity the living. And above all, all those who live without love. There was a fantastic line where Dumbledore's portrait was telling Harry that suffering is as natural as breathing. What do you think about this quote? I think that suffering is a natural part of life. We all go through it. Running away from it, hiding away from it, that doesn't work. That's what Dursleys would try to do. But facing our suffering, facing our pain, that's what ultimately makes us stronger. And that's what ultimately makes us magical. Right. So at the end of part one, the world has been turned upside down. I mean, like literally. Harry's dead. Albus no longer exists. And Voldemort has become like a supreme ruler. 
Scorpius is left alone to fix things. Even with all his anxiety and his insecurities, he faces his fears and fights for what he believes in. What are your thoughts on this? It's actually a really interesting dilemma here because for the first time in his life, Scorpius is not bullied, but celebrated. He is now the Scorpius King. The most popular girls in school want to ask him out to the school dance. All the guys want to be his friends. He is celebrated by students and the teachers alike. And yet this alternative reality in which Voldemort is the ruler, in which they celebrate Voldemort Day, is not the reality that he wants. It's actually frightening. It's a nightmare to him, he says. It's a nightmare to him, exactly. And he would rather be back in his own reality, in his own alternative universe, than be in the kind of world where Voldemort is in charge. And so he risks everything. He risks his own life to be able to undo the past, to be able to get back to his own reality. And I think that says a lot about who he is. But you know what's really interesting is after standing up to the Death Eaters, after standing up to the Dementors, after getting back to his timeline and facing his biggest fears, he realizes that he's no longer afraid. I know, I He's love it. not afraid of anything anymore, and it seems like there's nothing else that can frighten him now. He calls himself Scorpius the Unanxious or something yes. like that afterwards. Because once you see a reality that is just like completely a horrible nightmare and you survive it, what else can you fear? Absolutely. And I think that this is very much what people get out of exposure therapy. So exposure therapy is done when people have some kind of an anxiety disorder. For example, if they're afraid of certain natural phenomena or certain experiences, certain situations such as being in a high building, for example, or flying or being exposed to certain animals like scorpions, for example. <laughs> and in exposure therapy, the person would be guided to progressively be exposed to their feared outcome in a gradual way to make them less afraid of it. And although this treatment is challenging, it's certainly not easy, when people are able to face their fear, they often surprise themselves. They feel like they're on top of the world. They feel exhilarated, much like when people ride a roller coaster, people who actually enjoy riding roller coasters. Mm -hmm. And after that, they feel like they can do anything. They feel like they can face anything. And I think that's very much like what Scorpius went through. He did his own exposure therapy. Yeah. He was able to face his biggest fear. And after that, anything else he needed to do wouldn't be nearly as intimidating yeah absolutely he came out of this like more confident than harry potter was back in the day to me he was this kind of a metamorphosis or kind of a conglomeration of hermione and neville put in one right he started yeah. out as this shy kid very smart of course which is wonderful but someone who was too timid to stand up for himself or other people and then very much like Neville Longbottom or maybe even more so turns out to be this kick-ass character who stands up for the people that he believes in and protects the world. This is all just so fascinating to talk about and relive this wonderful play 
especially through Scorpius's transformation and essentially an evolution. So this play revolves around the dangers of trying to change things that happened in the past. Nothing can truly change things that have already happened, but we can find value in learning from it. How does this play explore this idea? I think very often when people dream of time travel, they wish that they could go back in time and undo their mistakes from the past or maybe relive a past experience or maybe undo something painful that has happened to them. However, we wouldn't be where we are now if we didn't experience the past. The truth is we are better and stronger now because of the experiences we went through in the past. It is true that sometimes our past experiences might have been absolutely awful and traumatic. Like Harry, for example, somebody might have lost their parents. Somebody might have experienced war, disaster, assault. And at the same time, I think that sometimes we might not have the strength or the understanding that we do now if we didn't go through some of those experiences. Now, I would never wish for anyone to go through anything traumatic or anything painful. And at the same time, I think that the desire to undo our past might erase the kind of strength that we might have today. And so I think that that kind of realization can be really empowering sometimes to understand that our past experiences shape us in the present and allow us to take really important steps toward our future. So basically avoid all time turners. Yes, no time turners. They should be destroyed anyway. We see that in that play. I mean, (laughs) when you see the end of the first part, you're like, this is crazy. No time turners. No time turners. So in the end, like almost all wonderful stories, the whole group needs to band together. There's so much power in unity and camaraderie. We can see that in today. Everything is trying to challenge unity. There's so many divisions that are just created to keep us apart. And we don't realize how powerful unity is. Can you speak on this? Sure. I think that we're as strong as we are united and as weak as we are divided. And when we band together, I think there's nothing that we can't do. I think that very often when we're in a difficult situation, the most powerful thing an enemy can do against the heroes is to separate them. And the most empowering thing that the heroes can do is to unite together for a common cause. And that is exactly what we're seeing here in this book, in this play. That's what we're seeing throughout the Harry Potter series. When the characters come together, they can stop even the kind of villain that they thought was unstoppable. And I think Never has that been more true than it is today. And I think we've seen that in the world repeatedly, especially over the past few years, that we can stand up to oppression. We can stand up for what we believe in. And the more we band together, the more likely we are to win. I love it. I love this play so much. I highly recommend it out there for everybody. It is amazing. Even if you've read the book, I think it was designed to be a play because just me not reading the book and going out and seeing it as a play, it was an amazing play. And I have to say the magic of it was 
something that cannot even be put into words. Seeing the polyjuice transformations and the different kinds of the spells, the special effects, the different kinds of characters. Really, being in the audience, you feel like you're a part of the show. But I think, very much like the series, the play echoes the same message: love is the most powerful source of magic. And that's a perfect place for us to end this episode of Superhero Therapy. Again, my name is Dustin McGinnis. You can find me on Twitter at the Valiant Geek. And I'm Dr. Janina Scarlett. You can find me on Twitter at Shadow Quill or on Instagram, Dr. Janina Scarlett Official. If you want to find out more about superhero therapy, please check out Dr. Scarlett's book, Superhero Therapy. Also, if you're interested in winning a free signed copy of Superhero Therapy, please contact us. Let us hear what you think about our podcast. We would love to hear from you. You can leave a comment at www.superhero-therapy.com or you can also email us at superherotherapy at gmail.com. Thank you very much for tuning in and stay magical out there, everybody.